Thank you, Parker, Chandler, Scott. Praise God. Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. Please uh, bear with me this morning. I, I lost my voice over the weekend, and it, uh, I just rediscovered it this morning. But uh, he's making no promises about remaining with me. So we'll trust the Lord with, with all of that. Please stand with me as we look. Read Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28 together. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You may be seated. really let's pray heavenly father we thank you today for your word we thank you for just the joy it is to come together and worship you we pray that you would help us now to turn our hearts to you we pray that you'd give us a great insight into to what we need to do as we look at your word and then you would enable us to do it through the power of your holy spirit working within us we pray for those uh, who are not with us this morning due to illness, due to suffering. We pray that you would be with those members of our flock this morning as well. Father, we pray in your son Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, I was here in the Five Points building and was uh, talking with a woman whom I'd, I'd never met before. We were we'd just started talking here in the, the building, and she had no idea who I was or where I worked, and just out of the blue, she, she just kind of blurted out uh, something to the effect of, I don't know why anyone would go to that Bethany church. <laughs> and I had two thoughts. Uh, first, this conversation's about to get really awkward for both of us, and I don't know a way to avoid it. And my second thought was, yeah, why do people go to that Bethany church? Well, the conversation continued, and it, it got actually slightly less awkward because she re realized she was talking about Bethany Baptist Church, and I said, yeah, I don't know why people go. <laughs> but fundamentally, her question is actually a very good question for us to consider. Why do people come to that Bethany Community Church? By what criteria does one determine what church one will attend? How does one decide whether or not a church is, is healthy? How does one determine how strong a church is? Or on a smaller level, how does one determine how healthy a ministry within a church is? When I was in college, I had the task of searching for a church, really for the first time. And as I began to visit different churches, what I found is that oftentimes churches had very similar doctrinal statements. All the churches that I attended and visited had very similar doctrinal statements. You could put their doctrinal statements side by side and 
as they talked about God and, and Jesus Christ and their understanding of Scripture and their understanding of, understanding of the Holy Spirit, on paper, all these churches looked very much the same. And yet, as I visited these churches, I found that there were actually, it seemed as I visited them, profound differences in how they approached ministry. And sometimes I'd go into a church and it would have a very solid doctrinal statement. It would say all the right things about salvation and God's word. And yet, things seemed off as I visited this church and I looked at the ministries in which they were engaged and I heard the sermons that were preached. And what I came to realize is this. A church that keeps Christ at the center of its focus is a church that's going to be a healthy church. A church that keeps Christ as its central focus and God's word that reveals Christ as its central focus is going to be a church that's healthy. And a church that begins to move Christ and his word to the periphery, to the edges of its church and of its ministry, is going to be a church or a ministry that is very unhealthy. And the more that a church loses its focus on the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is revealed in his word, the more unhealthy that church is going to be, the more things are going to be off, no matter how great a doctrinal statement they have. I'd like you to look at the text with me this morning here in Luke chapter 7. And as we look at these verses, what we're going to see is that authentic God-exalting ministry is distinguished by its unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. An authentic God-exalting ministry is going to be distinguished by its unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, remember where we are here in Luke we're in chapter 7, and in Luke chapter 7, what's happening is that various people are asking, who is Jesus? And various answers are being given to that question of who is Jesus. In this section of Luke chapter 7, what we're seeing is Jesus interacting with John the Baptist and John the Baptist's ministry. And two weeks ago, what we saw is that John the Baptist had some doubts concerning Jesus and whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus addressed those doubts two weeks ago, we saw. In this section of John chapter 7, verses 24 through 28, what we're seeing is Jesus commending John in his ministry. And then next week, we're going to look at some people who had unbelief and rejected John's ministry, and therefore Jesus's ministry. But this week, what we're seeing is John, the Baptist's ministry, being commended by Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ commends John's ministry, we see certain characteristics of authentic, God-exalting ministry. This is a very important topic for our church. And I pray that, that God gives me the, the voice to get this through to our church this morning because this is such an important issue. Let me just give you a couple reasons that I believe this topic is so important to Bethany Community Church. Why is it so important to understand what authentic, God-exalting ministry looks like? One reason is because if the Lord tarries, doesn't return, our desire was, would be that this church outlasts its current leadership. That is, 20 years down the line, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, most likely the people who serve in leadership now at this church will not. 
give you a pause to think about that. What is it going to look like when that next generation of leadership comes up the ranks? What's it going to look like as this next uh, generation of leadership begins to, to exercise ministry? My hope, my desire, my prayer would be, would be that this church would be a church that demands leaders who are going to exalt God in their ministry as well. And this is also an important topic because as we come to a common understanding about what authentic God-exalting ministry looks like, it's going to protect our church from division. Sometimes in a church, uh, one faction will say, well, this is what we believe ministry should look like, and another faction will say, no, no, this is what we believe ministry should look like. A church that understands what God calls authentic ministry is going to be a church that's unified and doesn't have those uh, divisions that exist within her. This is also an important topic because uh, at times God is going to call different of you, different ones of you away from Bethany Community Church to, to different communities. And as you go into different communities, our desire would be that you would have the, the tools to understand what a, a, a godly church looks like. And so for that reason, for those reasons, I believe this is an important topic for us to consider the, together this morning. I believe this is also important for us to consider because not only is it important to understand what an authentic, healthy church looks like, but many of you are engaged in individual ministries within the church. And as you're engaged in those individual ministries, how can you determine how healthy, how God-exalting, how Christ-honoring is your individual ministry? As we look at Jesus committing John the Baptist ministries, we also see characteristics that help us as individuals, evaluate how healthy our individual ministries are. So again, the central idea of this text this morning is that authentic, God-exalting ministry is distinguished by an unwavering commitment to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. As we look at this text, we're going to see that it divides itself up very neatly into three sections. Jesus is asking a question three different times, and each time he's going to give a different answer to it. And as he gives this different answer, we see a different characteristic about authentic, God-exalting ministry. So let's look at the first characteristic of an authentic ministry. We see that in verse 24. Verse 24 tells us when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, and he asks this question for the first time. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? And then he gives the first answer. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? There in the, the place where John was ministering, there were these reeds that some of them could grow up to be uh, 16 feet tall. And when the wind caught those reeds, the reeds could kind of go back and, and forth, back and forth. And so Jesus a asks this first question, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? This, this reed shaken by the wind? And the answer, of course, is no. So we see the first characteristic of an authentic ministry is that an authentic ministry stands firm in its call to repentance. An authentic ministry, firstly, stands firm in its call to repentance. John, as he engaged in this ministry in the wilderness, was not a reed shaken in the wind, but was someone of extreme conviction. 
turn back a couple chapters to chapter 3 of Luke. And what do you see John the Baptist doing? As John the Baptist preaches to the crowd, he's very unwavering in his call to people to repent. Verse 8 of Luke 3, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Then the crowds come to him, verse 10, they say, what do we want to do? And John's message is consistent. He calls them to repent, and then he tells them what repentance for them looks like. The soldiers, our tax collectors, next come to him, verse 12. They say, what do we do? Again, John is consistent, repent, and tells them what repentance looks like for them. Soldiers ask him, what should we do? And John is unwavering in his commitment to call them to repentance as well. And as we know, as we talked about last week, and we see throughout the rest of chapter 3 there, John the Baptist is so firm in his call to repentance, he even calls Herod to repent. Herod refuses to repent, and in fact, John the Baptist's unwavering commitment to, re- to calling people to repentance ends up costing him his own life. Sometimes uh, people, as, as I talk with them about uh, their time here at Bethany Community Church, uh, that they tell me that they appreciate the boldness of our teaching ministry. I said, well, you know, we're very uh, excited about how bold uh, you are in the preaching ministry and how bold the Sunday school teachers are in their teaching ministry. And I, I, I appreciate the compliment. I assume it's a compliment. But at the same time, it kind of strikes me as, as odd. And I, I believe that sometimes our church seems more bold than, than perhaps uh, we would naturally seem simply compared to the evangelical malaise in our, in our culture today. What do I, I mean that by that? Let me read a, a quote by John Stott. John Stott is talking about our, our culture's uh, uh, current apathy toward preaching. He says this. He, said, he says, True Christian preaching, by which I mean biblical or expository preaching, is extremely rare in today's church thoughtful young people in many countries are asking for it but cannot find it why is that now listen to why he says there's a, a lack of biblical preaching he says the major reason must be a lack of conviction about its importance for it is reasonable that if those of us that is pastors who are called to preach were persuaded that this is what we ought to be doing we should go away and do it If then we are not doing it, the explanation must be that we lack the necessary conviction. I believe that Stott is absolutely right there. There's a lack of conviction in the pulpit about the necessity for bold biblical preaching. And it manifests itself not just in the pulpit ministry, but in all the ministries of the church as the church as a whole wavers in its commitment to boldly proclaim the truth of God. Let me give you some points of application here. In fact, turn your Bibles to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27. As you're turning there, let me first read from the book of Psalms. We're talking here about authentic ministry, standing firm in its call to repentance. 
giving you a couple thought, uh, thoughts of application here. The first thought of application is that our unwavering call to repentance is not rooted in self-righteousness, but rather fear of the Lord. So first of all, as we're thinking about standing firm in our call to repentance, first applicational thought here is that authentic, excuse me, an unwavering call to repentance is not rooted in self-righteousness, but rather fear of the Lord. Uh, Psalms 49, verse 12, the psalmist writes, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. That is, the person who has confidence in themselves, confidence in man, is going to meet end, their end is going to be in destruction. Therefore, Proverbs tells us in Proverbs uh, 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. That's a perfect picture of what an unwavering call to repentance should look like. An unwavering call to repentance, we're seeing, first of all, shouldn't be rooted in our own self-righteousness, but rather in our fear of the Lord. I was looking at a friend's Facebook post the other day, a friend of mine from high school. Very sad situation. This uh, man, had, as a young man in high school, had been a very bold witness for Jesus Christ. Today has, has a largely abandoned the faith. And in his post, uh, he was arguing that religion is a very dangerous thing for people to embrace. He says religion is a dangerous thing for people to embrace because they begin to, to tell other people what they should do. And as they tell other people what they should do, it is actually a damaging to other people. Instead, he says, that people should re reject, reject religion and uh, allow themselves to, to pursue the fullness that the human mind uh, can, can uh, offer them. So I, I wrote back, I said, hey, great point. Tongue firmly in cheek. Great point. We should remove ourselves from, from the shackles of religion and embrace the full potential of the human mind, just as we did under socialism, communism, Marxism, and secular humanism. Uh, no one was ever oppressed in those systems, right? You see, the problem, the problem with, with any form of, of oppression, with any form of, of self-righteousness, is not rooted in religion. It's rooted in the human heart. We have a constant desire to exalt ourselves and consider ourselves as righteous and in our self-righteousness uh, call other people to become like us, which is essentially what my friend had done in his post, right? I've rejected religion, therefore you all need to re reject religion as well. As you and I stand firm in our call to repentance, as we try to have an, a ministry like John the Baptist's authentic God-exalting ministry, our call to repentance, first of all, our unwavering call to repentance, is rooted not in our own self-righteousness, but rather, as the, the writer of Proverbs 14 here says, in our fear of the Lord. We have a fear and awe of God that calls us to call others to repentance. <coughs> Secondly, uh, as we think about our 
this uh, standing firm and called repentance and think about applicational thoughts. Secondly, our unwavering call to repentance demonstrates a core truth of the gospel that we must be reconciled to God. We're unwavering in our call to repentance. We're standing firm in our call to, to repentance. First of all, not out of self-righteousness, but out of the fear of the Lord. Secondly, because we recognize that everyone has a need to be reconciled to God. Colossians <coughs> chapter 1 as Paul is, is talking about the, the beauty of, of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter one, uh, chapter 1, he says this, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. So often today, churches are not standing firm in that call to others to repent. And as they waver in that call to repentance, they're actually rejecting a core truth of the gospel message that you and I are sinners in need of reconciliation to God. It is an extremely unloving thing to do. An authentic, God-exalting ministry is going to be unwavering and calling people to repent, telling them about their need to repent. And as we fail to mention words like, like sin and judgment and God's wrath, we are actually being extremely unloving to those whom we are supposed to be serving. Remember I was in high school. There was an activity at the end of the year called uh, Project Graduation. And a Project Graduation was designed to be this, this big party at the, uh, the, the day of graduation. And its, its stated purpose was to keep the graduates from going out and drinking. It provides them this, this safe place to have a, a big party. I was in the uh, counselor's office one time. I was, uh, I think I was a teacher's aide in the counseling office. And this woman who was in charge of project graduation for my class came in. And she was uh, raising funds for project graduation. And she uh, handed me an envelope. And she said, how much would you like to give to uh, help protect your friends from drinking? I said, look, uh, you know, I'm, you know. I already gave her the office or something like that. I gave some sort of lame excuse. And she looked at me, she said, don't you care about your friends? Don't you care about whether or not they're going to be uh, in danger on graduation night? I said, look, ma'am, uh, you can bribe my friends not to drink for one night, but that says nothing about what they're going to do the night before or the night after. I said, what you're doing is, is really, you're just putting a Band-Aid on, on a massive wound, a massive problem. You see, the problem that many churches have, the problem that many of our ministries have, is as we fail to, in our call to people to repent, to turn from their sins, as we fear giving people that message, what's happening is we're failing to address their real, real and ultimate need. And so as people come into our church, as people come into churches and you say things like, you know, God wants you to be happy and God wants you to do this, and they're just kind of giving these feel-good self-help messages, what's happening is you're failing to address the root problem, and that problem is a need to be reconciled to God. brings me to the third aspect of standing firm in our call to repentance. You see, an unwavering call to repentance 
proclaims not just the danger of God's judgment, but the joy of being reconciled to God. An unwavering call to repentance proclaims not just the dread of judgment, but the joy of being reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, that is an amazing truth that you and I have the opportunity, if we're faithful in ministry, to proclaim to people. And as we fail to proclaim repentance, we fail to show people the joy of being able to be reconciled to God. Turn with me in your Bibles. I've got to pace myself. I'm getting too excited. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter, I'm going to look at a couple passages in, in Acts. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter has just delivered the gospel message. And in verse 37, people hear the good news, or they hear the, this, this, they hear the, the good news about Jesus Christ and realize they've rejected it. They crucified Christ. And in verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do now? And listen to the good news that Peter gives them. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. This repentance is good news. Repentance is not just about God's judgment. Repentance is the good news that you can turn from your sin and turn to faith in Christ. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 uh, Peter says this in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And he goes on, and uh, he says, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Brothers and sisters at Bethany Community Church, the message of repentance is a joyous message that authentic ministry must proclaim, telling people about their sin and about their ability, through God's grace, the blessing of turning from their sin and being reconciled to a loving God. Acts chapter 11, we see the same thing as Peter's describing the message that went out to the Gentiles. And Peter's telling them how, how good things are, and he says, look, um, and the people respond, verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He talked about their repentance and the joy that they had in repenting and turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. An unwavering call to repentance 
an unwavering call to repentance, an authentic ministry, an authentic church is going to be, stand firm in its call to repentance. As it stands firm in its call to repentance, it's not going to be rooted in self-righteousness, but rather a fear of the Lord. It's going to proclaim this need to be reconciled to God, and it's going to proclaim the joy of being reconciled to God. You know, and I'm excited about this new parenting uh, uh, shepherding series that our Sunday school classes are going to be going through. Uh, parenting, I, I believe, for, for every, every person that sees parents or a person who is a parent, it, it's, it's just a huge issue that we need to think through biblically. In my interaction with my children, sometimes my temptation is to attempt to affect their behavior solely through punishment. In other words, I want them to see the consequences of their sin so dearly that they'll, they'll turn away from it. And sometimes I focus on the, the punishment aspect of, of parenting and discipling. That's a dangerous thing to do, isn't it, parents? I can affect my children's behavior to a certain degree through fear of punishment. But if my children are simply afraid of the consequences of stepping out of line, then they are in real danger as they leave the shelter of my home. And what I really want to do as a parent is not just present to them the consequences of failure, although that's an important part of parenting, certainly. But what I really want them to see is the joy of obedience. And that as they are obedient to mom and dad, there is a, a joy in that fellowship. Far greater, far greater is the joy that we can proclaim to people of being reconciled to God. John the Baptist in his ministry is not some reed that goes swinging back and forth and back and forth. He is firm and unwavering in his call to repentance because he wants people to experience the joy of the coming kingdom. That's the first question Jesus asks and answers here. The second question is in verse 25, it's the same question but with a different answer. Okay, so you didn't go out to see a read, 20, verse 25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's court. Here's the second principle about authentic ministry. An authentic ministry, secondly, an authentic ministry values Christ above all else. John the Baptist isn't some guy that goes out and, and lives in this luxurious palace. He's a person who does his ministry in the wilderness. And as he engages in this wilderness ministry, his value is not the same values that the world has. His value is in proclaiming the Messiah. There's a very instructive passage in John chapter 3 into John's thoughts and his actions. In John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist, this is before John the Baptist is put in prison, John the Baptist's disciples come to him 
And they're a little concerned about his lack of prominence. They're concerned about this new guy, Jesus. And what happens is this. There's this, this they're coming to, to John, and it says in verse 27, John answered this, these, these concerns of his disciples, and he said this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. What an amazing insight into the character of John the Baptist. His ministry is all about proclaiming Jesus Christ. All about proclaiming the way for the Messiah. He says, you yourselves bear witness of, of what I came to do. This is, this is my joy that he is taking prominence over me. This is an amazingly beautiful thing. He must increase and I must decrease. An authentic ministry, an authentic church that's practicing God-exalting ministry is going to have this same attitude. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Let me give you some examples of how a church can, can fail in this, this area. I was at a church one time in college. This was during my, my college search, or my church search in college. And I happened to be at this church on a Sunday where they were, they were announcing their new building ministry. And they called it uh, the master plan, which kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. Now, this, this was many years ago, and I can still remember this phrase as they were describing all the things about this building. Now, I, I have no beef against buildings, you know. I'm, we're headed that way. But there was this line in the presentation. It was talking about the youth ministry and the youth wing of the building. It said, we're going to create a youth facilities that your f children won't be ashamed to bring their friends to. I thought, how tragic, how tragic a focus and how easy it is for a church to begin to value other things more than Christ and to move Christ, the proclamation of Christ and his word off to the periphery, off to the edges. Let me give you some examples of ways this happens in a church and things we must be careful of. A church begins to move Christ to the periphery and begins to exalt itself as it begins to, to market itself. That's one way. In other words, the church begins to proclaim itself instead of proclaiming Christ. Now, I got nothing against sending out flyers with your church's name on them. I uh, like my Bethany Community Church logo, you know. But I doubt when I get to heaven, I'm going to see the Apostle Peter wearing a Bethany Community logo shirt. And I doubt Peter's going to come up and say, hey, I'm glad you guys went with the green. Good decision, right? A church gets into danger as its passion begins to proclaim itself, proclaim itself, Bethany, 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 Bethany. 
the logos, the advertising, all those things are, are the periphery. The center is Christ. And all that we do in uh, telling people about our church is so that, what? We can tell people about Christ. And so often those things begin to, to get out of whack and a church begins to market itself. We must not do that. We must value Christ above all else. A church also gets in danger as it begins to imitate other churches instead of imitating Christ. Church says, well, we want to be like John MacArthur's church or John Piper's church or some big church in Chicago or, or New York or California. Church gets in danger as it begins to imitate other churches instead of imitating Christ. A church gets into danger of, of moving Christ and valuing Christ above all else and moving Christ to the, the periphery as it begins to strive for relevancy in the world's eyes. It desires the city or other secular organizations or people to say, that, that church is relevant, that church is hip, it's happening. Not a problem for us. Church is in danger of moving Christ from the periphery and here is an area that we struggle in, I believe, that I struggle in. As a church begins to believe that it's the only church that does ministry right. Church is Christ's church. It's not an individual church that does ministry. It's a church that tries to pursue Christ. A church gets in danger, an individual gets in danger of moving Christ from the center of his ministry or her ministry as it seeks to promote itself or a person seeks to promote themselves, his or herself, in the context of their ministry. An authentic ministry values Christ above all else. And here's what I believe is a very key question for you to consider as you think about your church or as you think about your individual ministry. If all the cultural trappings were, were taken away, you take away the nice seats, and you take away the cool PowerPoints or the, the, all the, the, the speakers. If you take away all the, the trap, the cultural things that we do to do church, could you t if you took all those things away, would the heart of the ministry still remain? At Bethany Community Church, if, if you and I had to meet out in a field, would the heart of our ministry stay the same? If our value is the person, Jesus Christ, and I believe the answer is yes, it would. All true ministry has this focus, valuing Christ above all else. Turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 13 if you'd like to do that. Hebrews chapter 13 I believe we see a great danger that exists for us in our North American culture and God's answer for it. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. What do you have? It's Christ. Look what he says next. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
John the Baptist could have pursued the world's pleasures, but instead he kept his life free from the love of money. He was content with what he had. He said, uh, I'm content with Christ, for he will never leave me nor forsake me. What then can man do to me if my fear is the Lord? If our value is Christ and we're content in Christ, the approval of man and the the rewards that, that men offer dim in value. Our church, I believe, is at a very exciting point in its ministry life. And it's very easy for me, I believe it's very easy for us as a church to begin to think about the future. And it's not wrong to think about the future, but to begin to think about the future and say, boy, once, once this next thing happens, once this next growth plateau is reached, once this next building is built, once this loan is paid, in the future, in the future, in the future, wow, things are going to be great. Instead of saying, right now, this moment This hour of worship in our church is an amazing and beautiful thing. And if none of the future things ever happen, I'm content because I have Christ. That's the sign of an authentic ministry that says you can take all the other things away. And I'm still content because I have Christ. Authentic ministry stands firm in its call to repentance it values christ above all else and then the third and final characteristic is this an authentic ministry proclaims christ boldly jesus has asked the question three times what did you got to see then he asks it the final time here in verse 26 what then did you go out to see a prophet And for the first time, the answer is yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Yes, uh, John the Baptist was a prophet. He was uh, the culmination, in fact, of the Old Testament prophecies. And then Jesus uh, quotes Malachi, and uh, not only Malachi, but there's elements of Exodus 23, 30 in here as well. But he quotes uh, Malachi, Malachi 3, where uh, verse 1, Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist, Jesus says, stands as the culmination of the Old Testament prophetic line. He is the the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, and he's the greatest because he has the most revelation about the Messiah. He's the one who's announcing the Messiah, and yet, and yet, Jesus says, the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, and what I believe he's saying there is, in the future, (coughs) as one has the ability to participate in God's kingdom, that kingdom is going to be so great that the, the person who's the least in that kingdom in the future is greater than John the Baptist is right now. He's not saying John the Baptist isn't going to be in the kingdom. Uh, Luke 13, 28 says that all the Old Testament prophets are going to be in that kingdom. But he's saying that uh, th- this, this coming kingdom is, is going to be just this phenomenal thing. 
And John the Baptist's ministry was authentic. It was God-exalting because he proclaimed, just as all the other Old Testament prophets did, proclaimed Jesus Christ. And he did it boldly. He's validating John's ministry in an incredible way. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament point to the person of Jesus Christ. There's this expression that uh, it takes this verb to fail and turns it into an interjection. Um, You younger people have heard it. For you older people, I'll explain what this means. Whenever you see someone uh, attempt to do something and be unsuccessful in that endeavor, you use the interjection, fail, okay? And if they fail really badly, you say, epic fail, okay? Am I right? Is that right context? <coughs> There's this church website. It's very sad. But it talks about churches' attempts to be relevant. And in their attempts to be relevant, sometimes they epically fail. Saw a picture of a man, Sunday morning service, dressed up like a lobster, quoting Beatles lyrics. <coughs> Church is engaged in playing Simon Says on a Sunday morning, singing secular songs as worship songs. A sermon series based on the television show Glee, you know, now, there's nothing inherently sinful about those things. Maybe the lobster costume. <laughs> it's not that those things are inherently sinful in and of themselves. The tragedy is there are attempts to be relevant when the church is intrinsically relevant. And we have the person of Jesus Christ and we have the opportunity to complain, uh, to, to proclaim Instead, we're wasting our time dressed up like lobsters. It's ridiculous and it's absurd because it's attempting to strive for something that's worthless. Jim Shaddix wrote a book called Passion Driven Preaching. And he talks about a conference he was at where they were talking about how to be relevant and the speaker was, was saying that he had just been at, this was a speaker at this conference, the speaker said, yeah, I was just at church last week, and the, the pastor talked about intimacy with God from the book of Psalms. He said, what I needed was something on parenting. <coughs> and I didn't get it. Shaddix, as he thought about that statement, said this, like many who have gone before me, I finally realized that preaching should not be driven by a preference, a program, or even a purpose, especially that of answering all the questions people ask. In other words, on a Sunday morning, we're not going to address all the needs that exist in here. Instead, preaching should be driven by a passion for the glory of God, a passion jointly possessed by both the pastor and the people. My voice is gone here. last legs here. Let me just get this out. Praise God. What do you demand from me as a pastor? 
What is it that you demand of me? I hope that it's God-exalting, Christ-centered preaching. And what do we expect of one another? I hope that it's nothing less than God-exalting, Christ-centered ministry. You can take all the other things and throw them out the door for all I'm concerned with. It's a bunch of garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may our church demand nothing less from its members, from its pastors, from one another than the exaltation of Jesus Christ. May we be authentic, God-exalted ministry distinguished by our unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And Father, as we prepare our hearts now to partake of your, your supper, we pray that you would equip us to do the ministry you've called us to do. May we be unwavering in our love for you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.